well, I am so excited today. Um, I've, I've known our speaker for the past almost four years. I've got to watch him grow. I've got to watch him develop. I've got to watch his pursuit of Christ. I've watched his faithfulness. Uh, even as a, a young man, he's one of the most faithful men I know. And he has proven himself over and over again. There's a lot of things in life, like I love talent, right? I love people who are whiz-bang, can do all this stuff. But more than anything, I love people that are faithful. Faithful to Christ first, and then faithful to his church and his body. And this morning, we get an opportunity to hear uh, from our youth pastor. He's been uh, grown up to some extent in this church, been a part of this church. Uh, but over this last year, has stepped into a great leadership. And our youth is doing an amazing job with that. Can you give it up for the one and the only Jordan Pripp. All right. Well, good morning, Zoe Church. How are you guys doing this morning? It's feeling like youth group in here today. We played a game before. This is awesome. I'm in my comfort zone. Uh, I'm really proud of Cam for winning because he got my birthday year right. However, it would have been pretty awesome if uh, Vicky not only guessed that Greg was older than the moon landing, um, but then also won the game. Uh, she did predate Greg, or she did predate the moon landing by five years uh, with Greg's birthday there. Uh, but hey, I'm super excited to be here this morning, guys. Happy New Year. Uh, congratulations, you made it here on January 1st. Uh, I hope you guys had a great Christmas. And uh, today, I'm super excited. Um, because <clears throat> some of you guys might not be super familiar with me. Uh, uh, if you're a youth student over there in the corner, y'all, I know you guys. Uh, or if you're a youth parent, you might be a little bit more familiar with me. Uh, but today, I wanted to, to give you an opportunity to get to know me a tiny bit more. And so uh, I got this game that I'm sure some of our youth students will know about. You might not know about it. Uh, we're going to play it really quick. Uh, it's called Two Truths and a Fiction. Because uh, we're in church and we're not going to lie today, okay? So here's how this is going to work. I am going to read you three facts about me. Uh, one of them is a fictional story that I made up. And two of them uh, are true facts about myself, okay? I'm going to read them to you. Going to give you like five seconds. Tell your neighbor which one you think is not true, all right? Here we go. Uh, number one, uh, my first job in high school was that I worked at a library, Okay. Uh, two, uh, I won the staff fantasy football league this year. Uh, as you can tell, I'm decked out today. Uh, my Bears are not winning this year. But Justin Fields will break the quarterback single season rushing yards record this week and next week. Uh, and then fact three is that I love being a youth pastor, okay? So I worked at, a high, worked at a library in high school. I won the fantasy football league. And number three is that I love being a youth pastor. Everyone take five seconds. Tell your neighbor which one you think is not true. He's studying me there. He's really thinking about it. All right. Let me, let me put your mind at ease first and foremost and tell you that I do, in fact, love being a youth pastor. So that one is the, that one is the true fact, okay? Uh, and as much as I would love to admit it, uh, the, the fictional story uh, is that I did not win the Staff Fantasy Football League this year. Uh, I did that much to the enjoyment to everyone else on staff. Uh, I did that because it's really annoying when one person wins all the time. And so sometimes you got to take one for the team, have a, bad, have a bad year, and let someone else win so that they're interested in playing uh, next year. 
But uh, like I said, I, I love being a youth pastor. Um, they, pastor Greg and Amber talked uh, a little bit about it, but I have been uh, attending youth here for, or I started going to youth here probably six or seven years ago. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I felt a call to ministry. I was about 16 or 17 years old. Uh, and since that moment, it's kind of been the thing that my life has been uh, pivoted around, so to speak. I started attending youth group here. Uh, I told my youth pastor at the time that uh, I felt a call to ministry and I wanted to be uh, a youth pastor. And then after graduating, I was uh, a leader in volunteering here. And then I got hired in last December as our associate youth pastor. And now uh, I've been able to have the privilege and honor uh, of being the youth pastor here uh, since this summer. And so for me, uh, ministry is kind of a, a, a very common theme in my life. My parents uh, are pastors. They have been my entire life. And so I've very much grown up familiar with that. And on a personal note, uh, it was a very key part of my life, uh, especially in my later high school years. It was kind of all pivoted around ministry and being a pastor is what I wanted to do. Uh, and even in all of that, uh, one of the most common feelings that I had had throughout that time uh, was kind of this just sense or feeling of inadequacy, right? Uh, of I had this feeling that, that there was someone out there who was, who was more Christian than I was, who was holier than I was, who, who would be a, a better pastor, who would be a person that actually should be in ministry, uh, someone that was better at it than me. And I know not everyone in this room feels called to ministry or is in the ministry, but I would be very easily to go on a limb and say that I'm sure most of you in this room have felt a similar feeling with that. And for me, it was almost like I was waiting for, for God uh, to see me make a mistake or even worse, see the mistakes that I had made in my life and that those things would disqualify me from being used by him. And maybe you in this room, like I said, you're, you're not pursuing ministry, but I would go out on a limb and say that you felt that same feeling of inadequacy at some time. That, that maybe for you, it wasn't about being a, a pastor, but you kind of have given yourself this almost sidelined Christian term, right? You come to church on Sundays, you read your Bible, but, but deep down you have this sense, this feeling that, man, if people knew the things that I had walked through, then they would know that that I'm a sideline Christian. I'm on the side watching everyone else be used by God. And today, I want to touch on this subject because I think there's a, a plethora of reasons of why that can happen in our life. But today, I want to look at a story of one of the disciples of Jesus because I think in this story, we can bring assurance that the Lord is not done with you, the Lord is not done with me, and that no matter where we've been or where we are in life, God can use us. I want to look at the story of one of the apostles because I think this apostle, we're going to look at the life of Peter. I, I think this, the, the life of Peter, shows us what the things are that God uses in a person. And a little spoiler alert, they're not complicated. They're not intricate. They're not insanely detailed. They're pretty simple. So we're going to turn uh, to our primary text today. It's Matthew chapter 16, 
verses 13 through 19. I'll let you guys find that. But if you want to stand with me, uh, we're going to stand to read God's word today. There's nothing sacred or special about standing. It's just something that we do here at Zoe Church that says that we honor the word of God above everything else. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you so much for the fact that every single week, God, this family, this church family gets to come and gather together. God, I pray today, uh, God, that through this opportunity that I have, God, I pray that it would not be my ideas. God, I pray that it would not be my thoughts. But God, I pray that your spirit and your truth would be uh, what we hear this morning, God. I pray that you would uh, get me out of the way, God, and that you would speak. We praise you and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So like I said, I've only got two points today, okay? Uh, There's two key things in the life of Peter that I think we can look at and see what God uses. And like I said, they're very simple and they're not complicated. And this verse, uh, these verses jump off the page to me for point number one. Character trait number one that God uses in a person is this. God uses a belief in Jesus. God uses a belief in Jesus. Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus, okay? He walked with him every single day for years. He did ministry with him. He did life with him. And in this setting with him and the disciples, when Jesus is asking this question of who do you say I am, Peter is actually the first disciple to say that he believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Even in this context, there's no way that Peter has a full understanding of what that actually means. Like, like there's no way he has a full understanding of what being the Messiah, being the Son of God, what that actually means. But he has a belief in Jesus. And this statement, this statement that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, this statement is the statement that Jesus says he will build his church on. The statement is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a statement of real belief for Peter. Like, he's not saying, oh, I think maybe you could be. Like, Peter is saying he believes that this is who Jesus is. Peter, in his life, after Uh, Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead, Peter will go on to be an extremely influential voice in the early church. He he writes parts of the Bible, he's uh, pastoring churches, he's planting new churches, he's spreading the gospel everywhere that he goes. But all of those deeds, all of those works, all of that starts from a foundation of belief in who Jesus is. It's not that Peter is some completely different or better person than we are. It's not that he cracked some code that we're trying to understand, but it's because 
Peter believed Jesus was the Messiah. Because Peter placed his faith in Jesus. And this is something that we still now have the opportunity and invitation to do all the time. Jesus is asking us to place our faith, to place our hope in him, to believe that he is who he said he was. And Peter is just an example of a guy who said, I believe. I believe. And the belief that Peter has is the thing that God uses. The belief that Peter has. Okay? So point number one is God uses a belief in Jesus. Point number two, the second characteristic that God uses in Peter is also extremely simple. It's this. God uses a love for Jesus. A love for Jesus. We're going to look at John 21, chapter, or John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. It says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, the second thing that God uses is a love for him. Peter loved Jesus. And this love is not just what we think about in love, right? Like we just spent a whole month, you probably all watched Hallmark movies or those really cheesy Netflix movies. Okay, I know my wife and I did. It had the guy from This Is Us in it. It was super cheesy, right? There was so much, you know, this emotional bubbly love, right? And when we think of love now in our life, like, that's what we think of. We think of this kind of emotional, like, oh, man, he loves me. But this love that Peter has for Jesus is deeper than even that. This love that Jesus is looking for is deeper than an emotional, bubbly love. This love that Jesus look, is looking for is this complete and holistic, surrendered love. The love that got Peter to drop everything he had for Jesus. The love that after Jesus ascends into heaven, that Peter completely changes the purpose of his life to be for Jesus. That everything Peter does from this moment on is for Jesus. Everything he does is to chase after Jesus and proclaim his gospel. And it's this love that even leads Peter all the way ultimately to his death. Peter is hung on a cross upside down because he doesn't feel worthy to be killed in the same way that Jesus does. But this love, this sold out love that Peter has for Jesus is what God uses. Now, also, when I talk about a complete and holistic love, it's not this exclusive, there is only the surrendered love, and then there's this emotional love, it is completely separate. We also have to realize that Peter 
does have this brotherly, familial, emotional love to Jesus too. He's lived life with him. Like we think right now that we have friends that we live life with, right? But Peter was living with Jesus, doing ministry every single day. He was walking miles and miles with Jesus. Peter was familiar with Jesus. Jesus was familiar with Peter. Peter knew him. He probably knew the jokes that Jesus thought was funny. He probably knew the things that Jesus didn't think was funny, right? Like Peter has this real relationship with Jesus. And this holistic, complete, all-encompassing love that Peter has for Jesus, that, that, that God is looking for us to have for him, includes both of those. It includes both sides of those loves. Because Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah. It's all based back on point number one, that Peter believes in who Jesus is. And because he believes in who Jesus is, this holistic surrendered love is possible. It's not just, oh, my buddy that I know, but, but it's this, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And just like Jesus is still offering us an invitation to place our belief in him, he's still offering us this invitation to have this love for him, to have this relationship with him that's familiar with him, uh, that knows Jesus, that has Jesus knowing us completely and wholly, this surrendered, sold-out love. But... Even though these two things, these two character traits are the things that God uses in a person, it's a little bit deeper. Because I know what you're thinking. You're like, Jordan, you told me that you were going to show me how God could use someone who's broken and imperfect like me. And all he did was show me how Peter was the first disciple to say that Jesus was the son of God and that how he passed this Jesus, do you love me test, right? Like, come on. He's obviously got it made. Well... Let's just take a moment here because the purpose of this story actually is not to find out whether or not Peter loves Jesus. Because he's right. He says it right here. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And here's the deal. He's right. Like Jesus is literally God. Here's a little heads up, like a little tip uh, when you read the Gospels. When Jesus asks a question, he doesn't, he doesn't need the answer. Like Jesus already knows the answer to the question he's asking, okay? So if he already knows whether or not Peter loves him, why is he asking Peter this question? And see, to understand why Jesus is asking Peter this question, we have to look back a couple days earlier in Peter's life. Because actually what Jesus is doing is contrasting and redeeming a part of Peter. See, this story takes place after Jesus uh, raises from the dead. But if we look back just a couple days in Luke chapters 22, verses 54 through 62, we'll see a different side of Peter than we're assuming. Then, seizing him, being Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. It goes on and it says, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. 
a little later, someone else saw and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, Peter, this Peter that we're talking about as one of the guys who wrote the new, parts of the New Testament, this pivotal, this foundational uh, member of the early church, this disciple who was the first one to make the declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. This Peter is the Peter that denies Jesus three times as soon as life gets rough. And not only did he ditch when life got rough, but God literally tells him that he's going to do it. God says, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Peter hears this, goes, no, no way. And then literally does it. He, he literally does exactly that. Jesus isn't testing Peter to see if he really loves him or really cares about him in that last verse. What he's doing is he's redeeming him. Because Jesus knew that Peter loved him. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a moment to redeem Peter from the denial that he just had before him. Peter, this apostle who's going to write the New Testament, denies Jesus flat out, point blank, three times in one day. I don't know about you, but as someone who, who is in ministry, who is a pastor, denying Jesus is like one of the really big things that you don't do in ministry. It's like, it's like one of the really big things you don't want to do that. And so we've got Peter, this hero of the faith, doing that exact same thing three times. So why? Why would Jesus use, call, and redeem Peter when he literally denies him, when he knew that he was going to deny him? Why? Why would Jesus use someone who completely denied the very thing he was called to? Well, the answer to that question today is the answer to the question of how can we be sure how can I be sure that God is going to use me in all of my brokenness, in all of my mistakes? How can I be sure that God is going to use me? And the answer to that question is our big so what today. The answer to that question is this. It's because it's not about you. It's because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Peter. You know what? It's never been about you. It's never been about me. And it's never been about Peter. The gospel isn't about us. The gospel is about Jesus. And that continues today. Jesus used and called Peter because it wasn't about Peter. When Jesus calls and uses Peter, he's not banking on him to be perfect. It's not about Peter. 
When God chooses to use somebody, it isn't because they're not going to make a mistake, they're perfect, and they're never going to, to waver from the belief they have in him. When Jesus calls and uses somebody, it's for his glory. But if you're like me, you can say, oh yeah, that sounds great. I know that, I know that, I know that. But we can still put it on us. Because I know that I've done that in my life. I can still put it on me. I can still think, man, if only I were better. If only I were better. If only I was like those other people in ministry. If only I was like those other Christians who made less mistakes and spent, you know, two more, three more hours a day reading the Bible, like those really real Christians. If only I could be like them, then God could use me. We always think, man, if only I could be like a Peter, like one of those disciples. If only I could be like, like one of those heroes of the faith that has their story written in the Bible, those true believers, then, then I know that I'd be a Christian. Because I know that I've thought that. And my answer to that question is really? Really? The heroes of the faith, that's, that's who you want to be like? I mean, you're right, like, Jordan, we've got, we've got Abraham, right? Like, it's Abraham. Like, you know, there's a, literally a song about this guy, Father Abraham, right? It's Abraham. Yeah, Abraham is the guy who slept with his wife's servant so he could have a kid. Yeah, that's, that's Abraham. Or we think, maybe I could be like Moses. Moses, oh my gosh. I mean, talk about freeing a whole nation from slavery. This dude is legit. He holds the Ten Commandments in his hands. They're written by God and then he holds them. It's a great picture. He's got these two big rocks he's holding. Look how jacked that guy looks. Right? Yeah, Moses is the guy whose story starts when he murders someone in cold blood and then hides the body so they don't find it. That's Moses. Or how about, here's, here's one you might, maybe some of you guys aren't familiar with this one. How about Rahab? Oh, Rahab. Rahab is someone who helps the spies of Israel as they take over the promised land. They're going to scope it out. They got to get into the city. And Rahab uh, is the lady who provides shelter for the, uh, the, uh, the spies. She welcomes them in their home. She hides them. She keeps cover for them, right, so they can, they can scope it out. And then when they, you know, take over the city, uh, Rahab is, and her family are spared because of her faithfulness, right? I want to be like Rahab. Well, Rahab is a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. And a title, which I will say, by the way, that God is not afraid to use when he claims her. He's not afraid to use her. And he's not afraid to even be vocal about the junk she's got in her life because it's not about Rahab. Or finally, you know, the guy that, you know, I'm sure you guys have all been waiting for, David. Oh my gosh, King David? Dude, kill the guy with a slingshot. 
I mean, he's taking over armies. He's the king. Killing lions with his bare hands, leading Israel. That's the dude. Macho David, right? That's what I call him. Macho David. Uh, except for that part in David's story where he looks out over the city, peeks into a woman's private life, sees her bathing, and then says, hey, bring her to me. So she has, or he has her brought before him. And then in that moment, he uses his power as the king to sleep with her. And then after that, she gets pregnant. And you're like, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. You're right. That's, that's pretty messed up. One step further. Oh, she's pregnant. What am I going to do about this? I know. I'll just kill her husband. And then it'll be like it never happened. Right? That's David. That's, that's David. If we look at the story of Scripture, we see that all throughout, God uses broken and imperfect people. All throughout Scripture. So if it's not about them, if it's not about me, if it's not about Peter, like what's the point? Why, why are you using me, God? What's the point? See, God uses broken people because ultimately it's not us doing the work of the Lord. It's God using people who humble themselves before him, who have a belief that he is who he said he was, that have a love for him that doesn't just go through affections, but is an all-encompassing, full love. Even if that means that in times like Peter, that love wavers. Because Peter knew what his anchor was. He wavered. Yeah, he caved. But he knew what his foundation was. He knew that his foundation was Jesus. See, if God used perfect people, if God used perfect people, then when they did those things, we could actually be like, oh man, I wish I was like David. He never made any mistakes. He was faithful. He was the man after God's own heart. If God used perfect people, that's what we would actually be saying. But because God uses imperfect people, I don't really want to be like David. I'm going to be honest. I just got married. I don't want to be like David. It's not what I want to do. What do I want to do? Is I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to see that all of these stories in the Old Testament of imperfect people are actually pointing me to Jesus. That all of those heroes of the faith that I've grown up hearing those stories of, it's not that they were great people, it's that God used them to point to his glory. What do all those people have in common? They believed in who God was and they loved him. They do it perfectly all the time? No. Far be it from them. But thank God that that's not what it's about. Thank you, Jesus, that he didn't have the expectation 
that Peter was never going to make a mistake. Thank you, God, that he didn't have the expectation for me that I was going to be perfect. Because there were things in my life that would have kept me out of ministry before I even got there. But because it's not about me and it's about him, he can use me. He can use me. God's work with us didn't end with salvation. God's work is continuing now. Jesus didn't save us and say, hey, I got that part for you, but you're on your own from here. But the sanctification, the process of us becoming more like Jesus is not by our own work. It's by his spirit. It's by his spirit. Because it's not about us. So I want to end today with a challenge. To remind yourself that it's not about you. It's about him. My challenge is this. Take your eyes off of you and onto God. Take your eyes off of you and put it onto God. Take your eyes off of your weakness, your brokenness, your imperfection, because guess what? Jesus already knows that. Focus your attention to him. Work through your salvation. Do it. But don't think that you're the priority. Don't think that you're trying to hit some some measurement, some level. Don't think that you have to be a sidelined Christian. Because Jesus is the one doing the work. It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. And this beautiful mess painting that we have is God using broken people for his glory. Because when it's not about you, you can't say, oh yeah, I did that. No, you didn't. It wasn't about you. God did that. So the band is up this morning and we're going to end in a response time. And this response time is, you know, it's not going to be like one of those hand-raised times, which are great, but this response time is between you and God. This response time is an opportunity for you to take your eyes off of you and put it onto God. We're going to sing that great song that we sang this morning that says, Christ be magnified. Let my life, my imperfect mess, let my life be the altar that glorifies God. I'm going to pray really quick. Jesus, I just thank you so much for the fact that you would choose to use imperfect and broken people like us. God, I thank you that it's not about me. It's not about me being good enough. It's not about me working hard enough. But Jesus, it's about you and your glory. And so today, God, I just pray that we would be able to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. God, I pray that you would truly change and transform us through your spirit, God. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you are still working in our lives today. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, that Jesus, you would still use us. In your name I pray.